On October 5, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a discussion on the ethics of democracy entrepreneurship as part of its Making Democracy Work seminar series. Panelists included Marcy Harris, CEO and founder of Popbox, Peter McLeod, principal and founder of Mass LBP, and Tiago Canero Peixoto, team lead for the World Bank's Digital Engagement Unit. The discussion was moderated by Arkan Fung, academic dean and Ford Foundation professor of democracy and citizenship at Harvard Kennedy School. For more information, visit ash.harvard.edu. Let me uh, kind of introduce the panel now and turn it over to them for a little while before we kind of go into a little bit more dialogue. To uh, your immediate left is Marcy Harris, who is a former congressional staffer, a lawyer, and most recently and maybe most prominently a civic tech entrepreneur. She is co-founder and CEO of Popbox, which is a civic engagement platform that meshes legislative data with a bunch of information about users to try to get them relevant and engaging information that they would like in order to generate public input and get that to government in a way that government can act on in particular policy decisions. And she'll tell you more about the, uh, the details of the innovation in a moment. She was an inaugural Technology and Democracy Fellow here at the Ash Center last year, and we're very grateful for your engagement there. And she's currently a New America, California fellow. For work in Popbox, Marcy was named one of Fast Company Magazine's Top 100 Most Creative People in Business and received a Tribeca Film Festival Award for Creative dis uh, Disruption. Peter McLeod, uh, to your, uh, one more to your left, is the co-founder and principal of Mass, which is one of Canada's leading experts in public engagement and deliberative democracy. Mass has led some of Canada's most ambitious efforts to engage citizens in tackling really difficult problems and po uh, with tough policy options by using different techniques like civic lotteries and citizen reference panels, which he'll tell us more about the details of those innovations on behalf of many clients um, and at, at both the federal and uh, urban level. Peter writes and re, uh, speaks frequently about the citizens' experience of the state, the importance of public imagination, and the future of responsible government. He's an Action Canada Fellow, was an Action Canada Fellow in 2003, and in 2008 received the Public Policy Forum's Emerging Leaders Award. Tiago Peixoto, to uh, his left, is a team lead at the World Bank's Digital Engagement Unit. It's a regular job for Tiago. He's like a much more fugitive, entrepreneurial kind of um, public figure and intellect on the internet. If you want a really great bibliography about all things participatory, <laughs> follow Tiago's Twitter feed, which is at participatory. Uh, I recommend that highly. Uh, but now he's got a, a day job at the World Bank in D.C. <laughs> where he works with governments to leverage technology-enabled solutions for better public engagement and better public policy in uh, developing worlds. He is the lead of the bank's digital engagement evaluation team, which I believe is a new unit, and he coordinates evaluation and research on activities that apply uh, evaluation methodologies to, to try to assess the effects of these technology innovations on participation, transparency, and governance issues. Tiago is also research director 
of the Electronic Democracy Center at the University of Zurich and a faculty member of NYU's Governance Lab, which is a scrappy new kind of developing effort that's trying to build a whole curriculum on civic technology. He's been featured in TechCrunch as one of the two, 20 most innovative people in democracy. All right. So these are our wonderful panelists, and why don't I hand it over to Marcy, and they'll each kind of talk a little bit about how they got in, involved, talk a little bit about their democratic innovation, talk about some of the conflicts and tensions, kind of tough situations that they've come across, and then we'll kind of have a little Q&A. Excellent. Marcy. Thank you so much, Arkan. It's always wonderful to, to be back at the Ash Center. I, I think I told Sean today that it just it feels like a, a brain vacation, like you get to come and think in such a meta way about so many of these issues that is really not possible when you're kind of in the weeds day to day. Though we talk a lot about ethics at Popbox and it's been very much a part of our founding story to think about what we were building and how we were building it in terms of democracy and wh whom we're responsible to and, and trying to thread the needle in, in the best possible way. I love the way that you framed the question of whose responsibility it is to work on democracy uh, and to work on kind of public good and public space. And I was, for some reason, I've been on the alumni track this week and I've talked to like my law school and my <laughs> college and they're all doing alumni profiles. I think it's time to start fundraising or something. But there was... There, there was this question that, that came up both times when I was talking to folks, which was kind of, how did you decide to get into this? And, and of course, you know, they want the answer to be, well, when I was at school in your institution, I was inspired by XYZ, <laughs> which is certainly true. But I think a lot of, of what I think kind of planted this seed of thinking about this space was growing up in a really small town where just everyone kind of feels like it's their responsibility to see something that needs to be done and just to do it. So whether it's, you know, family members who ran for a small office or people who just were happy to share their opinion about whatever was going on in the town at the time or a community center that needed a new roof. So somebody made the sandwiches, somebody did the fundraising and a whole bunch of people got on top of the roof and, and did it. There's, there's just a kind of identifying a problem, addressing a problem spirit that, that I think is very much a part of the American tradition, certainly small town tradition anywhere. And I think it, it carries through in the way that we look at things now. Although right now it feels like technology is very much a necessary part to so many of the problems that we see and so many of the, the ways that we think that some of the problems we see can be solved. So that was very much my experience. I am not a technologist. As you mentioned, I was a congressional staffer and I uh, went to, con I had gone to law school late and so was coming out of law school with you know, Lexus and Westlaw and all of these wonderful tech tools. And then I got to Congress and it was like the world that technology had left behind. <laughs> and one of the reasons for that really was that people who built technology didn't really understand the congressional world and what was needed there and the problems that were experienced there. And the people who were dealing day to day with Congress weren't completely absorbed with the technology. And, and so there was, there was no way to make the connection between what was needed and what was possible. So I, you know, had this list of all these things I thought someone should fix and kept taking it around to everyone I could find. And they all said, yes, please go fix that. 
so I kind of took over and, and, you know, you talk about entrepreneurship. I think that it's kind of the alien that lives in your belly that, that starts to take over and enter every conversation and you can't think about anything else until you just go do it. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, one foot in front of the other and wonderful people showing up to help. We built Popbox to solve my problem as a congressional staffer, which is, I don't know if these people are really constituents. All of this information is coming in, and it's, and it's completely unstructured. And every staffer in every office is doing the same Google search I'm doing of who support, which organization supports this legislation and which organization opposes it. So the idea was one platform that would address all of those problems. And it was pretty, pretty simple. Here's the bills. Individuals can create an account and weigh in. Organizations can post their positions. All of it's publicly available. And, and the idea was to kind of align the needs and motivations of each. But as soon as we built that and solved that technical problem, we found 25 others that we wanted to solve, including have we just built a platform that only empowers those who already know how the mm -hmm. legislative process works? You know, how do we help people engage, that's going to require some explanation. How do we even get this platform out to a broader audience? And, you know, these are questions we're still working on, but that's kind of how the path evolved was just responding to the problems or the feedback that we um, experienced as we got started. But I think another piece that you emphasize that's so important is sustainability. And for us, the question of legal model or business model or monetization all came down to how do we just get enough fuel in the tank to start this car. So we didn't set about creating Popbox thinking, you know, and then we're going to all retire in Semaritz. It was really just a what do we need to do to make this happen. And so we ended up, opt I mean, we, we came up with a revenue model because we never imagined that somebody was just going to write million-dollar checks to keep us going. And so our entrepreneurial path in forming as a for-profit, and we define ourselves as a mission-driven for-profit, and, you know, our goal is not to IPO. <laughs> it is to keep the lights on, pay, pay our wonderful team to show up, and continue to, to grow and scale. But I think the questions about how these organizations are formed, how they're funded, how they sustain, and whether they can sustain are really important, and they do bring up some of these ethical questions that you mentioned. And I am so excited that the actioner is asking the questions because I think it is important to the entire space that we are thinking about these questions and that we're taking in, them into an account into account and that also even for the public that there aren't really bad experiences that happen from the civic tech. We, mm -hmm. The trust that exists in the civic tech space is important to everyone in the country and in, in this space itself. That's great. Could you spend a minute or two on what the revenue model is? Sure. So Popbox is, again, all the bills in Congress come into our system. Organizations can post their positions to support, oppose. Individuals can come to Popbox, find out about bills, write their uh, message to their lawmaker. Uh, there was, so when we were trying to figure out a revenue model, we looked around and found that there was this $4 billion grassroots advocacy industry that existed for all of the organizations that are saying, tell Congress to do this or tell Congress to do that. And we thought, hmm. What if we could get those folks, you know, just a tiny little bit to finance this civic goal that we have? So Popbox is free for anybody to use, but if an, adv 
and we have these widgets that you can place on your website to say, you know, tell Congress that you support this, tell Congress that you oppose this, and if you're an advocacy organization that would like to have, well, you can have it for free if you don't want analytics, but if you want a dashboard that shows you X people landed on the page, Mm -hmm. Y people got step one, step two, step three, that's a pro product that you can customize. Right. Cool. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Well, this is a great way to begin, and there are a lot of things that, that resonate. Marcy asked when I came in this evening, she said, so are you, are you GovTech or are you SimTech? <laughs> and I thought to myself, I'm low-tech. <laughs> and, you know, Mass is focused. You're the face-to-face representative. Exactly. Of I, I'm, I'm, you know, IRL, right? In real life, that's what we do. Um, so, like, Mass is a shop that was set up almost nine years ago, coming up to our ninth anniversary. We focus almost exclusively on what we think of as long-form deliberative process. <laughs> I now, love that. Now, why, why do I call it that? Because, you know, one of the great things about escaping the academy was not then being forced to define my terms um, at every interaction. <laughs> and I got tired of distinguishing between citizens' assemblies and citizen juries, and in our case, the preferred nomenclature is a reference panel. I'll say just very quickly, the reason it exists is, you know, we found that politicians actually get really wound up with some of the grandiose language that can accompany some of this work. And they're like, well, who are these citizens' assembly people? Um, so for us, a reference panel simply means that government refers to a group of citizens an issue, and they refer back a set of recommendations. And I think that's the appropriate relationship. And it's a relationship that most politicians, government writ large, understands because they're in the business of accepting advice from lots of different sources, from many different kinds of experts all the time. So we've just found that that is an easier way to go, long-form deliberative processes. But you know, the <laughs> language here, I think you used the phrase, Argan, uh, strange words, right? Democracy entrepreneurship. Under our breath at the office, we'll sometimes say, yeah, we're a democracy company. And that, like, like people's skin just kind of crawls a little bit, and it's uncomfortable. And, and we kind of smile when we say it, because Obviously, for us being a business, and for reasons I'll explain, was simply the, the best route to preserving, in fact, our impartiality and autonomy. Uh-huh. That if you don't have shareholders, per se, and you don't have much of a profit impulse, then you know, an incorporated company gives you a tremendous amount of autonomy and agility. And our origin story, I think, is, is significant. So because there's so many deliberative nerds in the room, uh, when I say BC and Ontario citizens' assemblies, some people perhaps will nod their head. And I was attached to the Ontario Secretariat. I was doing my doctoral studies at the time, like a proper doctoral student, totally like blinkered and thought that the the only thing that mattered was what I was studying. And these assemblies were like flaky West Coast political gimmicks, had no interest in them and end up being attached to one of them. And had that kind of epiphany in watching the Ontario process unfold of it being a kind of rip in time, right? Like it was discontinuous with what we experienced in everyday political life. And for those of us attached to the Secretariat, we were all very concerned that, you know, what happens when the party's over? Right? <laughs> what happened when the assembly concludes? And we knew that if we wanted to sustain some of what we had learned, much less build on this process, we needed to do a few things. 
We needed a vehicle in which we could continue to iterate. We knew that we needed to drop a bunch of zeros from the budget because that was a $5 million kind of flagship initiative. And those weren't going to come around as often as we might like. And so it was, it was a very uh, conscious choice that we could either, I could finish my doctorate, maybe. I could uh, go into a university department. I could apply for research grants. And if I was lucky, maybe every two or three years, I'd get the chance to do something at scale. And there'd have to be the alignment between the grant and a government client so that there'd be action on the other side of the process. So that, that seemed slow. And I, we thought about being a charity. Uh, but I didn't want to be the guy kind of cap in hand being up with citizens, right? Like, you know, how about a fiver and we'll, we'll make democracy great. <laughs> um, didn't want to go uh, that route. And, and again, this is why we ended up incorporating. Our name is Mass LBP. It's deliberately obscure. We could have been called something sexy like citizen strategy. Um, but that's really distasteful, and our preference is to blend into the background when we're doing our work. So mass is a bit high-minded. Obviously, it's mass public and the need for a kind of interlocutor in mass society. There's a lovely Thomas Paine quote, there's a massive sense that lies in a dormant state that good government should quietly harness. Oh, that's lovely. Is that, which, to me, describes actually what that, that relationship, that dance, ought to resemble. But if you're going to be all precious like that, you've got to have a bit of whimsy. Uh, and LBP, which really messes with lawyers, they get so wound up about this because they think it's some legal firm they've never heard of, is led by people. So our full name is Mass LBP Inc., but Mass, Mass to our friends. And, you know, we, we're definitely a mission-oriented uh, company, but it's, it's a peculiar mission. You know, we've, thought, we've tried to think carefully about the pace of innovations in governance. Right, and this is a this is a, a field that necessarily has to work slow, right? Because there's a lot of force to our governance institutions, and they have to be reformed very carefully. And so, in creating Mass, we recognized that this was you know, at least a 20-year undertaking, and and that was if everything worked out right, you know. And the hope wasn't to transform Canadian democracy. It was, as I was saying to Melissa Williams back there earlier today, the, the grand vision was that perhaps someday the OECD, when it writes up one of its how societies govern themselves, you know, profiles, on the Canada page, there'd merely be a little call-out that talked about this quirky way in which Canadians try and resolve complex <laughs> policy problems periodically. And so for us, the emphasis has been far less on innovation, because I actually think the innovations are comparatively easy. I think the greater challenge is embedding, right? So how do you set up an organization that can, can go the distance? That, you know, you hear these things about creativity all the time. It's, it's wonderful, have a nice idea, but it's actually just waking up and doing it again and again and again and again and again and making what seems innovative actually every day. That is where change, I think, ultimately comes from. So we're, we're quite kind of sanguine, the subject of our own you know, entrepreneurial vigor or innovative capacity. So just to give you a sense of what we've been up to then over the last eight years, at this point, our work, when we're doing these deliberative processes, the company's set up so that nothing's cross-subsidized. Only about a third of our practice, though, is in running these long-form processes. The rest will be public sector strategy work, possibly some facilitation, convening, some research. I can get into it in greater detail later. But... You know, at, at this point, this year we'll have our 28th 
reference panel. A reference panel is made up of a selection process and then the deliberative process. We use what we call a civic lottery. It's a form of sortition. And we call it a lottery because we want people to feel good about winning. <laughs> and, it, and it's remarkable. We've now sent about, this year it'll be 300,000 pieces of mail on behalf of these 28 different government clients. That's one in 60 households in Canada have received <laughs> an invitation to participate. And we've sustained about a 4 to 6% response rate. And that's a lot, because we're not asking people just to like subscribe to our magazine. We're asking them to give up four, five, six, ten Saturdays of their time to address what are very often complex, beneath the headline, beneath the fold policy issues, like reforming Ontario's Condominium Act, for instance, right? Or identifying spending priorities at a local hospital, or authorizing the opening of supervised injection sites. So it really varies the kinds of projects that we've been taking on. In any event, there are about 1,200 Canadians that have served now through these processes, and it adds up to about 30,000 hours of deliberative time uh, that Canadians have, have invested. So our, our ethos has been show, don't tell. Just, just do the work. Be very responsive to your clients. For us, what matters most in playing the long game is that the work itself is useful more than it is innovative. And being a private entity has been a big part of ensuring that there's a positive kind of business discipline that the work itself to that deputy minister or permanent secretary or whomever is going to be of such value that rather than spending $100,000 on this, they're going to choose to spend $100,000 on that because it will actually help them solve the problem, right? Even though it's arduous and difficult to actually run these things well, it demands a lot of scrutiny and all the things you're familiar with here. Anyway, I think there's a kind of roundup of some of the stuff we've been up to. Yeah? Excellent, okay. excellent. Now, uh, we're moving a little bit on a couple of dimensions. Tiago, at least in the World Bank job, is on the buy side rather than the sell side of democracy innovation. You're kind of a consumer of democracy entrepreneur and projects, right? And then that's one dimension of movement. And then the other dimension, obviously, is at the bank is addressing developing countries rather than the rich OECD North American types. So, yeah. so well, thank you, Arvind. Just to start, because this is being recorded, disclosure, my views are personal, does not represent the views of the bank or anything <laughs> like that. Okay, so very personal, everything I'm going to say. So uh, one of the things, as, as the bank, many times we're on the side of buying innovations, but actually channeling that for the governments. But as a bank, we're also in the business of selling with interest, um, <laughs> which uh, is the revenue model, if you ask me. Uh, how it works. But one of the things that we do, and particularly my unit, because some people ask, so what's the World Bank doing on participation? We have a big unit, uh, which is around governance, and um, it's called the Governance Global Practice. And one of the things that we do is to provide support on all things governance, from civil service reform to citizen engagement, to which is the part, it's the work that I, I co-lead at the bank. 
right? So just to give an example, not to sound too abstract, in Kenya we're supporting uh, the implementation of participatory budgeting at the county level. In Tunisia, we're supporting the government with the decentralization process, which mandates transparency and citizen participation at the municipal level. And in Brazil, we also do lots of what, what we call citizen feedback around public services, basically calling people after they go to the doctor and say, did you have to pay a bribe or not? <laughs> and hoping that people would do something after that. So I was just thinking about ethical dilemmas and as I heard you guys talking here I thought like first of all I think just this event speaks a bit about the about the community itself all that I'm saying is that there's autocratic entrepreneurs out there and they're not probably not holding a parallel conference on their ethical dilemmas right <laughs> so um, I think it's a, it's a very good thing and, and it's a, it gives a feel good feeling but I thought of, of three dilemmas and I'll go quickly into them and we can talk about them later as somebody who has worked and here I'm not talking just about my work at the bank but even mostly the work that I did before which is basically trying to many times convince governments to do participation sometimes with some incentive sometimes just trying to really sell them right so um, <laughs> I wrote some names of dilemmas here trying to put them together well the first one is what I call the over-the-counter problem Right? It's, you might be selling it for the right reasons, but people are buying it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> right? So, just to give an example, open data portals. If you look at the number of countries now that adopted open data portals, and if you look at their traditional vocation with uh, democratic values as transparency and accountability, you kind of like doubt whether they're doing that to further democracy or actually just to gain certain certain legitimacy, uh, be celebrated in a few international conferences while they routinely undermine basic freedoms and liberties in their countries, right? So now, when you work <laughs> in this space and you have these moral dilemmas, which this is a big dilemma, you need to have a mitigating factor, otherwise you stay paralyzed, right? So for each of these dilemmas, I'll come up with a mitigating factor. So what is the mitigating factor for the over-the-counter problem? First of all is that governments are not homogeneous and unitary. So sometimes you're working with a government that is not, let's say, the, the greatest example, but you might have ministries, local governments, and individuals, and reformers who are inside trying to further a cause, right? Yeah. So dismissing everything as tokenistic, you might actually be undermining those people who inside are the reformers, right? So it's... It says in statistics, they say the ecological fallacy, right? Don't take the, the unit of the individual and assume that it behaves like the group. I think of that when I might have come into doubt. But of course, we still have to use our best judgment about what are the intentions behind that. And sometimes, I don't do that, but I know lots of people who do that. They will sell it to government, hoping that government is putting a rope around their necks. Right? So, well, you put, he'll put a transparency website, he's trying to gain legitimacy, but he, well, maybe he'll get in trouble and get overthrown. Right? <laughs> this doesn't happen often. I mean, I, I don't do it, but there are people that they do it. So, they, it is a game. And normally there are two forces at stake, and people are playing it strategically. Right? There's one side that wants to legitimize a, a regime, there's another side that wants to further democratic values, and they are all pay playing strategically amongst themselves. So this is the over-the-counter problem. 
The other one is the opportunity cost problem, which is, for example, I work in an institution where people are doing campaigns on vaccination or they're doing normal people to wash their hands. My friends from health here, you know? So it becomes very difficult sometimes when you think, why should I be telling them to reform, to spend some money on technical assistance to implement participatory budgeting when um, people are not getting enough vaccination, right? Mm -hmm. And um, what is my mitigating factor for that? The way I think it can mitigate. You can't mitigate really because it's a dilemma, but how you comfort yourself, right? <laughs> First is the moral imperative of democracy, right? So you'd think, I would say democracy, for me, deep inside, even if people make bad choices, I'm fine with it. Right? I prefer that my parents let me make my choices. They make me go to med school, make much more money than I make now, but be miserable for the rest of my life because I don't like it. Well, respect to my doctor friends here. So it is about freedom, right? And on that, you cannot make opportunity cost calculation. But also, and what I try to say is that democracy or building democratic stuff is that you try to minimize the risks so that people can continue getting vaccination when they need it and do not get bridges or roads or laptops. Because this does happen, particularly in non-democratic regimes, which is the non-alignment alignment of preferences and needs. So this is, for me, the mitigating factor for the opportunity cost. And then there is the last one, particularly if you're working in development, which is the context matters dilemma. Right? And particularly now in the new development thinking or what people are calling uh, doing development differently and so on, you know, there's, this whole, there's this whole thinking about context matters. But if you push that to an extreme, then policy ceases existing. Right? Then if you push to an extreme, context matters, there's absolutely nothing that somebody who's been working with democracy and everything or who's seen how it works elsewhere can tell to those people because context is so exclusive that policy knowledge just becomes irrelevant, which I don't believe to be true. Just again making the parallel with medicine in the same way that the context of the patient matters, his age and everything else and so on, you don't forget everything you learned in med school, right? The patient still matters, but the knowledge still matters. So the way that I try to mitigate that is precisely this. Well, context matters, but sometimes if you're there or you're trying to help, it's because things haven't been working for a while, right? You, of course, you will not deny the value of context, but you also need to assume that there are certain things that you might want to be doing, building on the knowledge that has been built elsewhere. Otherwise, we all lose our jobs as well, right? Why write about democracy if, pol if context matters that much? Not saying that it doesn't matter. The other side as well is the question of even being a foreigner. You don't know the country. But then the only way is that you do come with some methods and ways of thinking. And I also try to seek comfort, for instance, in the, in the fact that the best book about democracy in America was written by a French aristocrat. So... <laughs> I think that you still, as a foreigner, you can make a, a, a good contribution. <laughs> but in the end of the day, it's always about using your best judgment and don't be paralyzed about these dilemmas. Because, as I said, the uh, 
autocratic, autocratic entrepreneurs are not losing nights of sleeps with their dilemmas. So we got to move ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you very much to the panel. Those are some great uh, opening remarks. Maybe I'll just make a kind of ask a couple of questions before we open it up and maybe a, just kind of bringing up adding some more dilemmas and ask you guys to kind of think about this. One thought that occurred to me in, in listening to your different innovations and experiences is, um, is an Aust Austrian economist, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, had this idea that what entrepreneurs do is engage in what he called creative destruction. And so what an entrepreneur does is invent something that kind of works better, that destroys the thing that came before it, right? So Netflix destroyed Blockbuster famously. Hulu may or may not destroy cable TV, right? But that's what entrepreneurs, they're in the business of creating and at the same time destroying. And the same thing is true of democratic entrepreneurs, right? So you're inventing something that is meant to displace a prior practice. And so the, uh, I think the most, uh, one of the most basic kinds of democracy entrepreneurship is people who know how to have meetings better than the ordinary public meeting, right? Mm. The ordinary public meeting sucks, right? It's like a panel and they're talking at you and then a bunch of people lining up at the microphone to ask Q&A and nobody learns anything and nobody gets anything and people just get more angry and the most basic kind of democracy entrepreneurship seeks to say okay well we can at least do that better but it's wiping out that practice which you know somebody working at Parks and Recs kind of created that meeting they're not <laughs> going to be too happy that you wiped it out but you've got something better right and similarly all of the things that you talk about displace a prior practice and then so one question is in the form of an ethical dilemma is how do you think about the unintended consequences of what you're doing and who might lose out from that prior practice that you're creating? And does anybody, is anybody kind of worse off from the thing that you make, right? So uh, a familiar ethical dictum from medical practice, a Hippocratic Oath, first, you know, do no harm, right? So should that be part of the code of the democracy entrepreneur, do no harm, or is that too demanding, right? Maybe that would paralyze you in a bunch of developing country cases. Really, if you like, are going to be constrained to do no harm, then maybe you can't do anything at all, right? So that's one idea. And then a, a second idea that came up with, or dilemma that came up in Marcy's comments is all, I think just about every democracy entrepreneur thinks about equality and inequality and whether or not the process that you're creating who's in and who's out is the thing that you're creating only available to more advantaged people, especially compared to the thing before it, or are there things you can do to put a thumb in the scale to make, make it more available to everyone? And so how do you think about the equality con uh, consequences, both in terms of equality of access, but in terms of also the equity of, or inequity effects of the recommendations in something like a, a citizen's reference? panel that may kind of come out of it, right? And then a much more demanding one that I think both Peter and Marcy talked about, and, and Tiago is, is very familiar with this idea also, is that democracy entrepreneurship depends on the goodwill of citizens, right? And if citizens go through a bunch of bad sham invitations to participate, to engage, 
they'll say a pox on, you know, I'll stay home and watch The Simpsons or American Idol or The Apprentice or whatever it is, uh -huh. right? And so you're taking a risk by engaging people in something, and it had better be good, otherwise you won't get another chance, mm -hmm. but the field won't get another chance because mm -hmm. people will just be turned off. So how do you think about that as, as citizen trust is another kind of common pool resource that might be exhausted by these things. And then uh, maybe finally a kind of provocative question of can you think of democracy entrepreneurs without naming names who you think are doing it badly, are, are violating one of these ethical dictums or some other ethical dictum or just like not playing straight or just you like... You want names. I, I don't because I, I refuse to name one, right? And so I have to give you that. <laughs> but just like examples of like stuff you've come across, maybe not even in your own experience, but, you know, competitors or other actors out there, you think, wow, they're, they're really not doing the right thing. They're kind of making it just to help us think through a little bit about what counts as not doing the right thing here. But obviously, you can't answer all of those. Those are just some food for thought. So maybe if you take a, a couple of those as you like in, in, in any, any order as, as things kind of occur to you. I'm happy to jump in. <laughs> so the, the first question was about creative disruption or, or creative destruction. And when, when we first started in 2010, disruption, I mean, it's still kind of a buzzword in the tech world, but it was <laughs> really hot. And it's we, all good. Disruption's all yeah, good. Right? But, but it, we realized, you know, you can, it, they really are hanging on every word when you're saying that in Silicon Valley. But if you go to D.C. and talk about disruption, people get a little uncomfortable because <laughs> it's the government's, you know, in general job to to tamp down disruption and it's not usually seen as a good thing. So we kind of internally talked about our approach uh, to innovation and, and this concept of disrupt as disrupting politely, <laughs> maybe just interrupting. <laughs> but, you know, it's so many ways, <laughs> PopFox, the, the way that we designed the, the original system really keyed off of what already existed. It was very much taking something that existed offline and just giving it an online platform. And so, you know, the, the grassroots advocacy system of individual hearing from an organization about an issue you know, that used to happen with postcards and then you'd pick up the phone or you'd attend the town hall meeting or you would write a letter. Uh, so this was, was really just bringing it online and the result of bringing it online was more transparency. The goal, and I think we accomplished this in some ways, but there's, there's a long way to go there, is reducing barriers uh, to participation and widening to a broader audience. You know, I, I just mentioned the transparency which I would say is a bit of a double-edged sword. So one of the interesting things about the transparency, I, I thought when I was a congressional staffer and I was getting these calls, if you know, I would get some really awful, terrible calls and think, oh my gosh, if other people could hear what Congress was hearing, they'd have, you know, they'd understand how crazy this discussion is. Or I'd talk to somebody who had just an amazing story that put a policy completely in perspective because of their personal, you know, connection with the policy and think, I shouldn't be the only one hearing this. This is, this is real. This is why this matters. This should be out there. So the, 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 trans, the idea behind the transparency was to get it out there, both the, the crazy the and the, the, yeah, yeah. the really meaningful. But I was telling someone, it was kind of like you turn on the light after a really exciting party and you see it's just a total <laughs> mess. Um, it's one thing to, to hear what Congress is hearing, 
but some of what Congress hears is not very nice and is not very informed and is not very, you know, yes. it's it's not considering the greater good. It is, yeah. but so that's one, you know, double-edged sword, that's one side of it. But I think that transparency is a net good because if you're trying to to affect change, understanding where others are coming from, even what they're scared about or even what they're misinformed about or even, you know, whatever the, the touch points are, uh, I think there's there's a net good there. But yes, certainly unintended consequences. And, and so, you know, again, that transparency gives gives us, gives others, gives, gives anyone kind of an opportunity to take it to that next step, which is how do we make this uh, process more understandable and how do we help inform people better? I, I think that having an online transparent benchmark just allows other work to see the impacts of other work. So in a lot of ways, we're just working on infrastructure. I just would underscore, emphasize, and high five, hell yeah, the citizen trust point. Uh, I do think that it's something that we're all vested in. And, you know, one of the problems of this space and perhaps the, the lack of resources in this space is that it's so easy for small, you know, we, we were in the hackathon era of, of civic tech for so long. Uh, and so many small projects with good <laughs> advice or excuse me, good intentions and great energy and good people would pop up in lots of places and there were you know not a lot of ways for them to get to the next level or to connect with each other or you know to scale in, in meaningful ways thank goodness they're going to be memorialized in participating and we can all learn from some of the experiences that came before but i think that is a is still a very significant challenge in this space how do we build upon the work that others do how do we connect them and how do we turn that into something that the public feels comfortable engaging with and feels like they can trust. The the last question about bad actors. <laughs> That's I, the one I really want. Well, to you know, I, I I actually don't don't know of anyone that I think got into this space with bad intentions. I, I just I just think if you've got bad intentions, you go spend your time elsewhere. <laughs> uh, and you're certainly not getting into it for the money. But I, <laughs> I but I think there's Sometimes, especially living in Silicon Valley, it's very easy to see people who don't understand the complexities of government or governing that can have really big disruptive ideas about how this would all work if we were going to build it in a, you know, co-work space tomorrow and have, you know, a billion dollars to fund it and have no, you know, previous constitution that you know when when we go colonize mars it, it <laughs> we get to start with a clean slate but there's a whole lot of baked in i'm a big fan of elon musk but there's there's a lot of baked in complexity to governing and a lot of reasons that some of it is messy that tech is not going to solve it can only be a tool that kind of harnesses and and empowers and makes transparent and you know benchmarks efforts in other ways. So I think, I don't have any examples, but, but some of the projects that have just kind of hurt a little bit are maybe <laughs> those that have just vast amount of resources and I feel are not very connected to some of the realities of governing. Of governing. Yeah, that's a great point.
I, I'm going to try and, I guess, focus a little bit on this question of entrepreneurship and then the, the piece about creative destruction. And it, it, it struck me in this conversation and thinking about it beforehand that, you know, we've got such a such a such few categories by which to then identify work in the space that if you care about democracy, you're a politician or you're a public servant or you're an academic. And so now we're invoking the language of entrepreneurship. It, it's not one that, I mean, even though the whole ink part of my entity or identity, I feel that's more kind of incidental. And I, I don't want to be precious about invoking this, and it's too easy to misunderstand, but I feel kind of more akin to a kind of practice of craft, mm -hmm. you know, where craftspeople are responsive to a market, but they're not defined by the market. And there's a kind of heroics of entrepreneurship that I feel that profoundly uncomfortable yeah, uh -huh. with. Um, I take it's your Canadian point. In you. It is very. I mean, you know, we're just happy to be here, folks. <laughs> sorry. So, sorry. Sorry. Um, but you know, let, let's let's think a just a little a little more precisely about what it is we're disrupting. So, in our work with deliberate, and I, I'm only speaking about deliberative processes here because it's it's what I know. You know, I think their work is more complementary. Uh, to existing institutions of representative and responsible government. And there are lots of specialized tools that we have to bolster the policy-making capacity and the legitimacy by which uh, parliaments and governments decide. Royal commissions, various kinds of committee work, etc., etc. So this is an addition to that suite of tools. So... I actually, no, I don't worry at all about, like, wiping out crappy town halls because I'm not trying to displace, you know, 800 years of citizen meetings in a remote, you know, mountain uh, town in <laughs> Switzerland, Switzerland, right? Like, that's a, that's a positive infrastructure of democratic practice. And in, in my experience, actually, a prior project was interviewing and visiting about 100 federal constituency offices, the local bureau for MPs in Canada. And I'd ask the very well-meaning, very dedicated constituency assistants, when was the last time you had a town hall meeting? And what had been a very positive discussion about all the things they do to try and connect with the community, they immediately got this frozen look on their face. And it was like, well, that's, you know, uh, one woman in Newfoundland said, boy, uh, why would I want to do that? You only get out the mad, the bad, and the sad. <laughs> That's anyway. a wonderful point. And I thought, well, this is crazy because the whole purpose of these offices was to be able to bridge the distance. And, you know, they end up <laughs> designing these default town halls. It's a design problem. It's repeated exposure to a circumstance that evokes not our best <laughs> qualities of us. or our yeah. better angels, but then very quickly that repeated exposure reinforces a view of this phantom public as something that is, you know, very emotional, volatile, ill-informed, polarized. And then what you do as a good public servant or congressional assistant, you see that as a risk, you manage to the risk, right. you design yes. the town hall in such a the way control. that will contain that risk, and what does that do? It's, it's, a, it's a positive feedback cycle. People become more volatile. They defect from the process, and they try and find other ways around it. So if it's not it's for true. me destruction. Um, it, it is a kind of displacement, but I think more properly it's a rebalancing. Because whether it's in the Canadian system or the American system, of course, 
you know, we live in a free society in which people can organize and create associations and, and they, they can access their political representatives to some degree. Special interests and stakeholders are better represented perhaps in that discourse than they ought to be and we need to rebalance that with a clear sense of public interest. But it's not at all clear what the mechanisms besides public opinion polling yep. and all of the yeah, challenges that that contains it isn't clear where that sense of public interest can really uh, be conveyed, be created. That's, that's the work, yep. as I see it. You know, very quick on the, on the issue of, of creative destruction, even though Schumpeter wasn't very much for participatory democracy. This is true. But uh, uh, I think one of the things that, just to give an empirical example, international development community, they always considered, by practice, citizen engagement or participation as governments consulting with civil society organizations. Civil society organizations, they normally they select and they already know what to do and at the end they'll take a to go to a video and think and say how much great that event was. They know the script and everything. <laughs> so The non-deliberative part. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but the, the, the thing is, even though it has all its vices and a huge problem of design, of non-being deliberative, I was to a meeting that we invited them, the guy said like, you should have told us what it was about before because then you'd come with a closed position and you wouldn't be negotiating like now. So they, they go to defend an agenda. So there's no reason. They should just send a letter saying what their position was, right? <laughs> but there are some mechanisms of accountability that are in there, even though you like it or not. So at some point I was in a certain country and thinking of doing a mini public a, a panel uh, through random selection. But... Uh, through discussions, we realized that we could be alienating civil society yeah. by creating a... a That's a good example. And, yeah. and we could be undermining a system. And then comes another guy. He doesn't like the panel. Civil society has gone and we would have lost. So then it's a matter of design. We said, let's think of a mini-public where actually one of the important parts that will be heard will be civil society. This jury will be speaking to civil society and civil society will be engaged through that process. So I think there are always ways for you to do this displacement without destroying. Now, the other thing on who is doing wrong, oh my God. <laughs> I, I just to say, as, we, as, as, as uh, Marcy said earlier, uh, I think there are lots of things around technology that don't understand the side of responsiveness. So it's been extremely easy to create spaces for voice, but right. the capacity to respond remains the same. So you have a a responsiveness deficit that is increasing and which is undermining. So I right. think particularly... You map every single problem yes. in a country, but yes. then so what? Yeah. I would say this, the, 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 the civic tech uh, community, a yeah. big part of it, not all, very important to say that, didn't go through the hurdles that the face-to-face -face community went many times, so it comes with unmanaged expectations, right? But there's another one here, and here I don't need to cite names, but look at the five... Uh, last years, there are lots of people doing direct democracy in the wrong manner, right? Um, and uh, we don't need to, to talk about many examples. But the risk that I see here is that people are throwing the direct democracy yeah. together with its bathwater, right? I saw today uh, there was a, something on the New York Times about why referendums are a bad idea, but when you look at it, every argument that, that they make against it, you could make it much stronger against representative or electoral democracy. 
So we are into a situation in which we either improve the institutions, democratic institutions altogether, or we abandon them altogether. So other than says that <laughs> we, we need to start thinking more about design on the things that we're doing. As, oppo as opposed to dismissing them, direct democracy bad, representative democracy bad, but thinking on their design and how do we make them work better. Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you very much. So why don't we open it up with some questions? For my name is Francesco Galtieri. I'm currently mid-career fellow at the Kennedy School, but for the past six years, before I mean 16 years in the UN, the past six years with the UN Volunteers Program. So working deliberately about investing more in citizens because mm. what I found in my experience with democracy, and I have to say that UNV being one of the 33 UN organizations is probably the only one that looks at citizen engagement in a way of investing. I would say it, ideally we should invest an equal amount of resources in training citizens to be citizens because I think that where we have got as a situation is that we have invested so much in institutions that the drivers of democratic institutions have been taken away from engaging with citizens into other type of interlocutors or forms of engagement. And what I find extremely interesting of the democratic entrepreneurship is that from one side it's probably filling a gap because the politics has forgot that you actually need, mm -hmm. beyond spending six hours a day fundraising, you actually need to talk to the people at least the equivalent amount of time. <laughs> and then from the other side, though, I think there is this aspect of innovation that for me is the most interesting that is trying to capturing a much stronger horizontal bond across the citizens that politicians are not used to deal with because we come generally in democracies from a tradition of delegation of power. People now want to delegate less and less, but they don't know how to interject mm -hmm. in that delegation. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, I would be interested in your thoughts about, you know, what is which part of your initiatives or in democracy entrepreneurship is filling the gaps of ins democratic institutions that got tired of doing what they are expected to do according to a social contract defined by the principles of democracy, in which part, in through which, which part instead you are investing in this regular training of citizens to be citizens and go beyond uh, the mad, the bad, and the sad into the engaged form, and I would just quote, you know, a, a reference. You know, we only have measurements of volunteering as one of the strongest forms of civic engagement across roughly 36 countries, mm -hmm. OECD countries in the world. And if we had to sum up those numbers, volunteer land would make the ninth largest country in the world between Nigeria and Russia. And we are only measuring less than one-fifth of the countries worldwide. So how much do you feel you are playing a role into that different way of engaging? Maybe we'll take a couple, a uh, few more questions and then, or comments. Um, there are many experts in the audience as well. They need not just be questions. Pedro Stoicic, and hopefully not the only doctor in this room. <laughs> as Tiago mentioned, I work for Rethink Health, uh, organization here based in Boston. Um, I have a question about tech innovation uh, when it comes to this, and, and it's just looking above you, the Arab Spring was usually mentioned as a Twitter revolution, which I don't believe that's true. It's a people revolution. But I'm curious about the ethical dilemma when you do something online. There's this question of are you actually reducing the capacity yeah, of question. citizens to connect and build a social metrics? And is there, a, is there actually, when you build those platforms that governments will feel good about, are you engaging in, in, in giving them an excuse to not invest in stewardship of our democracy. 
Um, and as a result of that, are we actually potentially can, can um, have a tragedy of the commons <laughs> when it comes to our, our, our democracy. Uh, and just to, to make a comment uh, to Tiago about health, the good thing about health is that it's, not, it's only 10% healthcare. 50% of, of our health is actually, the new research is showing that it's coming from the social fabric and how we are connected with our, with our communities and people. So there's promise there. Uh, <laughs> good for us. <laughs> Thank you. But anyway, the question is like, is there, is there an ethical dilemma of are we creating an excuse for the governments to do something, but also are we actually reducing the potential for people to connect with each other? Kind of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. All right, back there. If you could identify yourself as well. Okay. I'm just going to stand because I'm at the back. My name oh. is Toyosi um, Akirele. I come from Nigeria. Um, I'm currently a mid-career oh, uh, MPS student at the Candy School. I work, so I'm a social innovator in education. And our space is a bit uh, different and slightly difficult than other aspects of innovation. Um, in terms of ethics, one of the challenges we've, we're facing in Nigeria is I'm sure you know that uh, corruption is a big issue in my country, and I'm not one of the people that lives in the denial of laundering my country's image you know, when I travel abroad. I'm more concerned about collaborations and how we can solve that problem. So I'm not going to come here and tell you that we're home and dry. But within the education space, there's a big challenge. The challenge of over-focusing on equipment and infrastructure rather than focusing on skill development for people. Um, Mark Zuckerberg was in Nigeria three weeks ago. My article is all over the internet. It's actually on The Guardian. I wrote uh, Mark Zuckerberg and what Nigeria's youth can do with political power. Because um, Mark strolled into Lagos, Nigeria, not on the invitation of any government, but he went straight to what we call our own Silicon Valley, which is in Yaba, you know, Lagos, Nigeria, where young Nigerians are innovating and creating solutions to our problems. But the problem is our governments focus on buying computers and putting them in schools because that is the opportunity that they have to be able to siphon money and, you know, steal those resources because computers that you sell for maybe $100 can be hyped to $250. And the people who are, who are going to um, give out those contracts already know how much cuts, you know, they're going to get on them. The problem and the irony is that um, while you buy computers into the computer labs, the teachers do, are, are not computer literate, and the children cannot also operate the computers. And then I, I also then have a problem with the institutions that fund, that partner with our governments to fund some of these projects. I wouldn't mention names, but when you give a country $1 million and invest, to invest in buying equipment and computers and building you know, education, innovation labs for them, and you turn your back on them, you go back to your office and mark it as a quick win of an investment you made in Nigeria. You didn't invest in Nigeria. You basically empowered our corrupt leaders to be able to consistently shortchange our people. So how do we move? How do we transition from that point where it's a big problem? Nigeria is a big space right now for innovation, but the innovation we enjoy comes from outside the country. We're not building local capacity of our people to be able to actually solve our problems. So when you talk about, you know, our biggest banks, our biggest um, IT companies, we're leaning on innovation from India, from South Africa, from China, from the United States. So, for example, in being here at the Kennedy School, I'm not focusing on the Africa caucus. I'm working with the Indians to build and, you know, to factor in our India-Africa conference and see overlapping capacity building. What can India benefit? What can Africa benefit from the healthcare innovation so that we do not spend $2 billion 
you know, in India as a country to invest. So how do we move from that point and empower the funding organizations that we don't need to buy computers. We need to be able to work on the minds of our students and teach them that if you build a simple mobile application and put the curriculum right inside there like my organization has done, you don't need to put computers in classes because when you buy 50 computers for one school, you can't even serve the 5,000 students in that school. All right. So comments from the panel on any of the, the clicktivism versus people and networks question, question about investing in people, and then the, I mean, there's many ways to interpret this. This is a very rich question about technology versus people, about indigenous capacity versus donors who may not have the same, you know, many, very rich kind of final question about Nigeria. But last word to the panel. Very quick. On the, um, I'll start by the um, investing on people, on their capacity, right? And which relates a bit with the question on Nigeria. I'll give the example of the open data. When we started uh, open data portals, when you started, I'm talking as part of a movement. One of the things that was done was lots of training to journalists to learn to use that open data and so on. The question is, and doing that capacity building, building that capacity in local. The question is, right. it's extremely difficult now, one, to measure what was the result of that, and two, is the scalability of it. Because in principle, it's more sustainable, but to each extent, it's more scalable. So nowadays, I've been working uh, with local IT. I normally just try to work with local IT firms in Tunisia to do a website that it's about transparency, transparency of transfers to local government to fit into the whole accountability participation chain. I mean, people ask me, like, will, will there be training for people to use website? I say, look, if it needs training, it's because it's bad user experience. And I don't understand how much of the tech innovation that we have been doing, particularly in the developing world, we say, oh, now we're going to have to go and train them. I mean, it's just bad user experience, you know? I mean, imagine what mobile phones would be if you needed to spend a whole day being trained about it, right? So now on the civic part, I totally agree with the part of civic education, even though in lots of places civic education comes with a dictatorship flavor, like we're in Latin America, <laughs> because we, were we, we basically learned to love our flag, uh, and that was it. But I do believe in processes which would call like, well, the long-form deliberation or thicker forms of engagement in which there are rules of the game for deliberation, you realize that you need to be informed, you know, you learn how to debate and deal with differences. I think that processes themselves can be a pedagogical experience, which is actually what people do. And just on the capacity to connect, it depends how you do. I think online petitions are great, but sometimes they look like a gagged form, form of participation. Imagine if you could go protest, but you cannot talk with anybody who's next to you. Because that's what online petitions look like in the online environment, <laughs> right? So they are great, but they should at least be a gateway for you to go to other places where you can connect. And this is one of the things that you're not doing, is this kind of civic upselling, connecting opportunities to, to participate in a stop. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so briefly, yeah, Marcy uh, and Peter. Maybe I'll just build on this, because as a Canadian, of course, I want to find a, a way that I can violently agree with my co-panelists here. <laughs> um, and and I, I, I'm still, like, uh, noodling around about this entrepreneurship thing, and obviously it sticks for me, right? Because good. I was thinking, I, I love the phrase uh, democratic design. 
what you used, right? And I think that's actually what this is all about, that the whole deliberative space has been very tr kind of tr uh, tribal, right? Everyone's been trying to voice their format, and that hasn't, that hasn't been altogether helpful, right? I don't think I'm selling a product called a citizen reference panel. I think there's an approach. I think there's a set of design principles. If I'm an architect, I'm not selling a house. I'm designing a house, and it's going to be through good dialogue and genuine engagement with the local context, with my client, and all the rest of it. So I think if we're going to reach for a kind of analogy, maybe it is the kind of world of, of design or architecture or something mm -hmm. where these relationships are, are described. Mm -hmm. I want to uh, just... Uh, say a couple more things to, to Francesco, though, about kind of civic education, which I think as well is about skills of citizenship, and these kinds of processes, of course, promote that. Um, I'm not sure, I, I think it's easy to say that we're less comfortable delegating things, and yet we can't forget as advocates of kind of participation that there is huge genius to our architectures of representation, right? Mm -hmm and that we need to bolster and support these. There's no other way in which large societies can make decisions well. And we need our systems of representation to be systems for greater empathy and understanding, to better understand the needs of strangers. And what I'm trying to do through reference panels and deliberative processes is extend the privilege of representation to more people. One of the funny things that happens in the first hour after I've given a spiel where I'm bigging up everyone for putting their lives on hold and generously volunteering their time, I'll then kind of switch tone and I'll look at everyone and I'll say, but I don't actually care what you think. And everyone goes, what do you mean? That's why I'm here. I'm here to tell you this. And I said, actually, that's, that's the point. There's nothing special about you, Francesco, being there. You volunteered <laughs> and your number came up but there were 400 other people who wished they could be in your chair. And so you have an obligation to use your voice as a proxy for theirs and to do what I think is the kind of mm. predicate of democratic citizenship of genuinely trying to put ourselves in each other's mm -hmm. shoes mm -hmm. and understand your needs as ours. Mm -hmm. And it's always imperfect and it's always messy and it's always incomplete. But the funny thing when I tell people this is not that they slump down, disengage and pull out their iPhone. They actually sit up a little straighter because now the job and seriousness of the opportunity has really hit home. And that, there's, there's real beauty in that moment, and I think it really shifts the kind of transactional repertoires that we spend most of our time in as members of family, as employees, as consumers. But, but this is a different role, and we have to be, as designers, very clear about the role we're trying to evoke. That is lovely. Oh, I am sitting up straighter. That was <laughs> good. Yeah. I love it. I'm going to go back and watch the video again. I also want to key on the, the question about civic education because a really crazy thing happened a, a few years into Popbox, which, as I said, we, we realized that we needed to start to explain things in order for people to be able to engage with the platform. And actually, actually, just about a year and a half ago, 
we started sending out an end-of-week summation of here's what Congress did this week. And a lovely woman in Washington named Whitney Wazinski, who works with us, pulls it together every Friday. And it's, you know, a, it's a little bit light, and it's very explanatory, and it jumps into, like, the Senate didn't get to cloture on this. You, of course you know that cloture means, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and really kind of explaining little bits that are happening but of course because this was a really big deal for us because we work so hard to be neutral that content is scary for us because almost right. any piece of content can be taken to be skewed one way or the other so I mean we work really hard to make sure even this piece of explanatory kind of summation is engaging but also neutral but what's so interesting is it's also not negative and that may not sound as revolutionary as it actually is, but an end-of-week newsletter saying this is what Congress did that doesn't have any kind of, like, snide... But, of course, you know they never do anything, really. Yeah. Or uh, and, <laughs> and any kind of headline or discussion about our government that doesn't involve some kind of cynical tone is actually surprising. And it's it's not partisan at all. I mean, it, it really and and I was talking to Daniel Stitt at the, at the Hewlett Foundation. He said, you know, it's just it's so amazing to see tone that is not negative about our government. And what I think is so important about that is not just that we're talking about what happened in Congress, but. You know, we're getting really interested in this concept of, of civic and political efficacy and how that is so key to people feeling like they can have impact. And if people feel like they can have impact, they're going to engage more, which is going to make them more effective, which will then lead to more, you know. So there's this, this circle that the negativity completely tamps down and kind of inhibits participation. So it's just like it shouldn't be revolutionary, but I think mm -hmm. one of the pieces mm -hmm. that we've picked up that, that we are surprised to hear from so many people is so different is, is just that piece of explaining what has happened in neutral terms. And interestingly, this will be our fourth week of doing it as a state pilot in Tennessee, so doing a little bit of a wrap-up of what happened at the state level. And already the click rates of <laughs> state-level information mm -hmm. are already even higher for that mm -hmm. newsletter. So I think, you know, that says lots of things, but we've, we've kind of suspected that the state level of, of mm -hmm. policy is kind of the great unobserved level right now. And, and also that people become more interested as things get closer to home. We'll keep looking into the reasons for that. So, so that's one piece where I think we're kind of filling a role of, of that maybe used to be filled by media that wasn't chasing clicks and uh, other institutions. On the, the prospect of people connecting over the platform, I, I really appreciated your um, point that that is not inherent to a traditional petition site. We actually didn't make it a part of Popbox when we started either for several reasons. The main one was that we were really concerned about trolls. We might have been overly concerned, mm -hmm. but the design of the platform initially was just to engage constituent mm -hmm. to lawmaker communication and, you know, require real names, but it would be displayed anonymously publicly, but also not to allow people to comment on the comments because we were afraid that people would be scared to, mm -hmm. to be honest and that they would feel like they were excoriated or targeted or whatever for their, their input. And so we're opening that door slowly. So we're mm -hmm. starting to work on how to allow that, but... 
I mean, a very slow walk there. But it's also one of those decisions that we we make differently because we're civic. Because if we were trying to drive clicks, if we were ad driven, yeah. like we would have done this you a long time ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. And to the question about Nigeria, I don't know a lot about the education side of it, but I love your point about. Uh, working on capacity and the ability for people to connect rather than just uh, computers and, and hardware. One of the most interesting conversations that I had about international applications of, of Popbox and other similar technologies was with Enough is Enough, the youth group there in Nigeria. And oh my goodness, talk about motivated, wonderful um, <laughs> young people making a difference. I, I think that the, at least from my experience with, with those conversations, the drive and the, the civic impulse is certainly alive and well there. And, and I do think that uh, opportunities to provide the technology that, to your point, don't require training, just require mm -hmm. use and, and collaboration uh, is certainly fertile and, and ready to go there. So this conversation reminds me of a, a passage from, from John Dewey in which he's talking about the difference between propaganda and communication or deliberation, you use the word, but it was about deliberation. He said, look, communication is when people are, and deliberation is when people are trying to figure things out. And propaganda is about when somebody is using words or images to try to get you to think something or do something, mm -hmm. right? And so the analogy is to the civic, right? I, I feel like What's extraordinary about you guys and your work is that it is, and it shouldn't be extraordinary, that's the sad part, is it is civic, where everybody else is trying to get something out of the political system or, or for some private purpose. The civic is really hollowed out, and, and especially, you know, Peter's comment is you're civic on a couple of levels. One is trying to architect the civic so that you get to some real deliberative discussion. But the second, and all three of you are doing this, and, and so are many other people working in this space, is create the potential for other people's civic impulses to come out, right? To say, look, I don't, I'm not interested in what you think for yourself as a resident of Massachusetts or as a first nations person, I'm interested in the empathy part and what you think of with your citizen hat on, which is very, very unusual these days, but which will have to become more important if our democracies are to thrive. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs>